0: Welcome to Bible Center Church and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. Good morning. It's good to be with all of you. I am Mike. I am the pastor of discipleship here at Bible Center and I'm excited to continue in this series on Colossians. We've been looking at some big things. Jesus overall We've recognized that the scriptures have called him creator, maker of all things, the revealer of the father, sustainer, mediator, reconciler, redeemer. All those things are true of Jesus. In these verses that are coming up, we're going to see that he is also the only one through which we can go through to have access to the father. It's Jesus alone. So Jesus overall and Jesus alone. These are big, huge topics and theological things that we see in scripture, but today's passage is really kind of a transition from the theological to the practical, from the person of Jesus to the mission of Jesus. And this passage for me has a lot of weight. I would say the verses we're looking at today are really why I'm in ministry. Taking the reality of who Jesus is and translating it into how we live our lives is kind of the key to the Christian life. And this passage gives us an example of that in the life of Paul, I think we can then apply into our lives as well. So if Jesus is overall, and if it's Jesus alone, how then do we live? How then do we live? So this passage in this sermon is really trying to answer that question. It first answers it for Paul. We see how Paul's been called to live, but I think as we do that, we see how we have been called to live. So we're in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be working through verses 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. If you have your Colossians notebook with you, grab that, pull that out. If you have a bulletin, hopefully there'll be some spots for you to write some notes as we go through this passage together. The first thing that we see in answering the question, how then do we live, is we live a life of joyful service, of joyful service. I'm going to start in verse 25 and then come back to verse 24. In verse 25, Paul just says it straight out. I, Paul, have become a servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you. I have become its servant, the gospel's servant, the church's servant according to God's commission. So we see something very particular with Paul. Even when you see the journey of Paul through the book of Acts, he had been called in a unique way, Jesus shows up on the road. Why have you been persecuting me? And he calls Saul to become Paul and gives him a unique set of things he's called to do. He's been given a commission. In light of Jesus being overall, in light of Jesus alone, Paul is to live his life in a particular way. So there's a commission given to Paul. But for us as Christians, I don't want us to think that it doesn't mean something for us as well. As Jesus came to earth and died on the cross, rose from the dead, and right before he ascended to the Father, he had all of his disciples with him, not just the 12, all of them, 500 or so. And he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, which is very similar to what we've been learning in Colossians chapter one. Jesus pauses and says, I am over all. Just like Paul taught us just a few verses ago. And then he looks at them and says, Therefore, because I'm overall, therefore, go as you are going, as you are living your life, make disciples. It's the imperative of what we call the Great Commission. And it hasn't been given just to that first generation of Christians, it's a commission that continues to every Christian, everywhere of all time, until all nations have come to know him as Lord and Savior and he returns to take us home. So Paul's been given a commission. You and I have also received a commission and our commission is simple, we make disciples. And what that means is here on planet earth, you represent Jesus. You are literally the continuation of the ministry and life of Jesus. He lives in you in the same way Paul said, I'm now a servant of the gospel. He lives his life for the sake of the church. You and I have been called to make disciples. The way that happens is we are also servants of the gospel. We live to serve the church. Which is a pretty unique calling. It's a pretty amazing thing. I mean, imagine a ruler, a great king calls you on the phone and says, I need you to represent me at this week's banquet, at this meeting. I mean, wow, what a phone call to get. Well, the maker of heaven and earth, has enlisted you. The sustainer of all things has called you. He's commissioned you and said, you will represent me, your creator, your savior, your redeemer, your reconciler. You will represent me and continue my mission while I'm at the right hand of the father. We are called to that. It's a beautiful thing. Our life is derived by that and driven by that. Now in verse 24, Paul takes some time to let us know what it's going to feel like to live out this mission, what it's going to look like, what it's going to take. In verse 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. Let's tackle that difficult section first. He says, Paul says, I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the body, that is the church. What does that mean? I've heard some folks try to figure it out and they've said things like, perhaps there's some level of affliction or punishment that Jesus didn't take and Paul had to take some of that because it wasn't completed in Jesus and that is not a good interpretation. That's not what Paul is saying here at all. Jesus completed it all. Only Jesus could complete it all. All affliction, all punishment that had to happen on Jesus happened to Jesus. He finished it. That's why he said it is finished. What Paul's describing is the ongoing nature of difficulty, struggle, striving, sometimes persecution, sometimes affliction that will take place to continue this mission of Jesus building of the body of Christ, building of his church. There's going to be some difficult things that are going to happen along the way. And that's what Paul is referring to here. And at the beginning, he says it this way, now I rejoice in my sufferings. Your first thought might be, Paul's crazy. Why would anyone say that? Like who rejoices in the hard stuff? Why would you ever rejoice in the hard stuff? Especially, why would you choose to walk into ministry knowing that ministry is going to punch you in the face? Why why would you do that? Isn't it just easier to stay on the sidelines? I would suggest to you, and I think you've already learned this in your life, that typically the most satisfying things in your life, the things that kind of bring you just this deep joy have been the hard things that you've gone through, not the easy things. If you're a runner or maybe I've ever been an athlete of any sort, When you go out and you hit that hard run, you get done with that hard workout, you just feel kind of good. That's why you do it again. It's called a runner's high or this adrenaline rush that you get. Maybe it's a project at work or a project at home that just has been difficult. And I can give you 12 illustrations of things that didn't go well in my home that I've tried to fix. But for you, of course, it all worked out. And now it looks just the way you wanted it to look. It wasn't easy, took some time. You might have a black nail. Maybe something didn't go right. But boy, is that satisfying to see it completed and done. So there's some suffering on the front end and then there's some rejoicing and joy on the back end. I would suggest that the most satisfying things in life came from doing the hard things, not the easy things. You, in your life, oftentimes rejoice in and through your sufferings, through your hard things. We rejoice over people hearing about Jesus. We as Christians rejoice when we see someone grow in Christ. Even if it's hard, even if it was a difficult conversation, even if you had to pray until you had calluses on your knees for that person. On the other side of it, there's a joy. There's a rejoicing, there's a satisfaction. Something eternally has changed, has shifted as this person has grown. I know in my life when I was, 15, and I didn't know this was going to affect me this much when I was 15, but I remember being at a retreat where the gospel had been shared, and this really cute five-foot-nine blonde girl stood up. She was a soccer player, and she had just made a decision for Christ. She was friends of one of my friends. By 16, I was dating that girl. By 22, I had married that woman. And it was such a beautiful thing to watch someone who didn't know Jesus come to know Jesus And then women pour into her life. I got to know her and I'd been a Christian for a while. So I got to have discussions with her and watch her just grow and grow to now she's a person who disciples and mentors other women. She's led people to Christ. And she's led people to Christ who've led people to Christ who've led people to Christ. She makes disciples. And there's been hard stuff for her and hard stuff for us, but oh, I can't think of anything more beautiful in my life than watching that. And you have to step into the hard stuff sometimes to see the beautiful stuff. In verse 24, I want us to look at the same verse, but just focusing on different words. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. I'm completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. So first we saw this commission that Paul was called to. And we realize the fact that we've also been given a commission that looks very similar. Paul's been called to make disciples and we've been called to make disciples. Paul recognizes in this call that he lives his life now for others. He suffers for others. He'll take on afflictions for the sake of the church, for others. When Jesus was challenged on what the most important commandment is, in Mark chapter 12, verses 29, 30, and 31, he responded by saying the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor. Agape is the word there. Agape, your neighbor, one another. That word agape there, that word for love, is a word that isn't found in Greek literature during that time. It really is only found in the Bible. And what it means is, it means this kind of love where you are willing to give up of yourself for the sake of someone else. There's a willingness to have self-sacrifice that this person gets what they need. Maybe not what they want, but what they need. The living example of agape love is Jesus himself, who died on the cross and bore the brunt of the weight of our sin to give us peace and forgiveness and reconciliation. Jesus is the manifestation of agape love. And therefore, the greatest commandment to us is to give agape love, to love the Lord God and to love one another. And I really believe right here is an example of that. Paul is suffering and he says for you, for the body, for the church. He's living out this great commission and he's living out this great commandment and we're called to do the same. So when you look at your life and the hard things you step into and the conversations you're willing to have and the things you put into your schedule, and the things you're willing to do, is it for the sake of others? If the great commandment is the central commandment, is it the central thing in your life? You've been called on this mission. You've been given direction to make disciples. There's a commission that you have. If you're a Christian, if you claim Christ, Jesus has commissioned you and sent you. And while you're being sent to make disciples, there's a centerpiece to it that we see here is for the sake of others. Why would you be willing to suffer? Why would you and I be willing to get a little uncomfortable? Why would we be willing to go through the hard things? It's for the sake of others. It's because we will choose to agape love others because God has agape loved us. Jesus gave up everything in his love for us. So we do the same for others. So what does this practically look like in your life? When you get up in the morning and you think through your day, how is your day connected to making more disciples? How is your day, your schedule, your hobbies connected to spending time with people? It's really hard to be in the making disciples business if you're not in the people business. So how, when you wake up in the morning, when you're setting your schedule, when you're choosing your hobbies, when you're figuring out how you're going to spend your time, how is it interconnected with people in a way where you can have some conversations, where you can show them some of the love that you've been shown, where you can create connection with them, where you can do something that matters with them, where you have discussions that might change them and you about spiritual things. Your life is a continuation of the work of Jesus. We're to live out the great commission and we do that through the great commandment. Your life is a continuation of the ministry of Jesus. Have you ever thought of yourself that way? You represent Jesus wherever you go, into the bank, into the grocery store, into your place of work, into the schools, in your neighborhood where you live, in every friendship that you have, you are a continuation of the work and ministry of Jesus. You represent him. So we're to love others in the same way he loved us. So we live a life of joyful service for the sake of others. The next thing we see when you go to verse 25 and 26 is we live a life of sharing the gospel. We live a life of sharing the gospel. Paul's talking about his commission there and he talks about, He's been commissioned to make the word of God fully known. And In verse 26, he describes it this way. It's going to get a little confusing, but we're going to come back and explain it. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of Glory. So this mystery is something that Paul is committed to. It's this mystery is the thing that he's taking to those who don't know Jesus. It's this mystery that has been there, hidden for generations, but now it's been revealed. Let's start with talking about how it's been revealed. It says, this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery that has been there in the Old Testament the whole time. That God has been preparing and planning the whole time. It's been there, it's been hard to see, but it's been revealed in this. God created all things and made you to know him. Sin broke all things. We have a broken relationship with him. But then what happened is he sent Jesus. Jesus took on flesh and blood and became a man. He died in your place and mine on the cross. The sin that you've committed and the sin that I've committed, the sin that we continue to commit, was placed upon Jesus on the cross. And when he died, he paid the penalty for your sin and mine. The third day, he rose from the dead. And then he ascended to the Father, sits at the right hand of the Father, and he sent his spirit to those who would believe. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus, the Bible says the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit lives in you, which is the mystery, Christ in you. The mystery is this incredible gospel reality, the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus died, buried, resurrected, ascended, and then sent his spirit to live in you. The mystery is Christ in you the gospel, and he goes on to say four more words, the hope of glory. So it starts with Christ in you, but the gospel doesn't end there. He goes on to say the hope of glory. The fact that Jesus now lives inside of you, the Holy Spirit is sealed inside of you. It means that he's gonna continue to work on you and transform you until one day you and I live with him in glory. So this mystery, this gospel message is from God creating all things to God restoring all things and the work of Jesus in between. This is the beauty. This is the mystery that has been revealed. The mystery is the gospel. The mystery is the gospel. Let's go back to the passage because in verse 26, he says this. He says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations this mystery hidden for ages and generations. What in the world does that mean? If you look back through the Old Testament, it was actually always about the gospel, but it's a little hard to see. It's almost like under a cloud or in a mist or like when we're heading through the valleys here in West Virginia, there's just spots where it's hard to see. It's kind of like it was in there. I'm gonna give you four Ps on how you can see the gospel in the Old Testament. Number one, it was hidden, but we saw it there through the promises that God gave, through the promises that God gave. The Bible says, God, Jesus shows up in the Garden of Eden after everyone, after they had sinned. And he looks at Eve and he says, through you, your seed, through you, one is coming who will crush and destroy the power of Satan right there according to the book of Galatians, is a promise guaranteeing the coming of Jesus. You see the beginning of the preaching of the gospel in Genesis chapter three, in a promise. A little bit later in Genesis chapter 12, he promises Abraham, I'm gonna make you a great people. And through your descendants, through one of your people, one is coming through whom all nations will be blessed. So he makes the promise to Eve, We see the population grow. Noah, population grows again. And then he pulls out Abraham and says, through you, Abraham, through your descendants, a Messiah is coming. So we have to see a promise. He promises again to Isaac and Jacob and to David and on and on and on. There's this promise, this covenant that is basically saying, almost like sunbeams trying to burst through a cloud, he's coming. This is all about the gospel. This is all about the coming of Jesus. Second P, we see prophecies prophecies. Over and over again, the Bible talks about Jesus who is going to come. It speaks of where he's going to be born, what he's going to be like. It talks about how he will enter into Jerusalem in the last week. It talks about how he will die on the cross and what he will accomplish in the book of Isaiah. Prophecies point to a coming Jesus. The third thing is pictures, pictures that the Bible gives us. So even going back to the Garden of Eden, when they've sinned, and God the Son is meeting with them in the garden, talking to them about their sin and handing out punishment, he goes over and Jesus kills the first animal and he makes clothes and he clothes Adam and Eve. In that moment is a picture from the very beginning, given that Jesus is willing to shed blood to take care of the problems that we've created through sin. One dies so that they can be taken care of. The picture is seen again quickly when it comes to Noah. The world is destroyed because of sin, but through a boat made of wood, he saves some and keeps them. Even through tribulation, even through difficulty, he keeps some. Pointing to one day when on a cross made of wood, he saves those who believe. It's a picture When the people of God are pulled out of Exodus, taken through the wilderness, and then put into the promised land, it's a picture of how God will redeem us from slavery to sin, take us through difficult times, but get us to this place, this ultimate promised land, heaven. Pictures, the Passover lamb, pictures given throughout the Old Testament. So it's hidden, but it's there. It's hidden, but it's there. The fourth P is we even see persons in the Old Testament, persons. In the Old Testament, there's high priests. There's one named Mechizedek and Aaron. And you see the function of the high priest representing man to God. You see prophets who represent God to man and speaks for God. You see kings like David. So you see these persons, prophets, priests, and kings, and they represent to us kind of what Jesus will be like as Jesus comes as the ultimate prophet. The ultimate priest, the ultimate king. So we see promises, we see prophecies, we see pictures, and we see people in the Old Testament, this hidden, but it is all revealed in the coming of Jesus. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Why do we go crazy at Easter? Because it's the revealed person of Jesus. He who is overall has come to save. As you go to verse 28. Verse 28 really sticks out to me here as something that kind of fine-tunes the commission. So we've been called to make disciples, but some of the questions we might have is, well, who am I supposed to make a disciple? When? How often? What am I supposed to do to make disciples? Verse 28 here answers a lot of those questions. So as we jump into it together, just let it wash over you. Paul says, we proclaim him, Jesus, warning everyone. The CSB that you have may not have the word everyone right there, but it is there in the Greek and it's there in most translations. They just kind of put it at the end and just have the everyone, assume that it's good that you put it at the end, but it's there three times. We proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so we may present everyone mature in Christ. Everyone, everyone, everyone. So part of this commission starts with this reality. Everyone hears. Everyone hears. When he uses the word proclaim and to warn, the picture, the concept there is that you're letting people know who Jesus is, people who don't know Jesus. There's an evangelistic part of this. And who needs to hear? Everyone. Everyone. You're proclaiming and warning everyone. If there's someone in your neighborhood that doesn't know, they're part of your mission. If there's someone in your workplace that doesn't know, they're a part of your mission. If there's anyone on planet earth that hasn't heard yet, they're a part of your mission. Everyone hears. You might hear us every once in a while use the word saturation when it comes to talking about our ministry and mission here at Bible Center. It's a word that kind of lives in the background, but it comes from these types of verses. We keep growing. We keep going. We keep faithfully doing ministry. We keep thinking innovatively. We keep doing whatever we have to do so that everyone has an opportunity to hear the gospel in a way that they can get it, understand it, and receive it. Everyone. Lord willing, there's a day when neighborhoods are saturated with the gospel. Lord willing, there's a day when schools are saturated with the gospel this city, this valley, maybe this state is saturated with the gospel. Okay, I'm doing this. I'm doing this because in my mind, the picture I have is like an ocean hitting a seashore. And it hits the sand and soaks every kernel. And it comes again and again and again. That we are a group of people who continue to share that message again and again until we know every kernel, every person has heard it wave after wave in your home, in your neighborhood, in your place of work, in the state in which you live. And may we do anything that it takes within God's desire and design to see this state saturated with the gospel. So the first thing we see here is everyone hears. The second thing that sticks out is everyone grows. So we're, we proclaim him and we're warning everyone. That's the Evangelistic side. The second side is, and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So before he talked about, he wants to make the word of God fully known. Here he says, all wisdom. The idea is that all of God's word should go into all of God's people. All of God's word, whole thing, goes into all of God's people with all wisdom. The Word of God is to be taught and known and understood so that we may present everyone, you, the person beside you, the person behind you, me, mature in Christ. Present them in the fullness of Jesus. So it starts with everyone hearing. But then the next step is everyone grows. Everyone grows. Everyone's being transformed. I would love for it just to be a thing that we say here at Bible Center, we grow. At Bible Center, we grow. God saved us and designed us to grow. So one of the things we're working really hard on is how do we clarify how we grow at Bible Center? And we've been using this thing called habits. We'll put that up on the screen. So this is a way that people can grow here at Bible Center. You can have a group, John talked about that earlier come on Sundays, attend regularly. Why? Because the word of God is preached and we respond to God with worship and we pray and we're with one another. Like it's the things that we're called to do. So it matters when you're here. Be in the Bible. You can't be growing. You can't be being taught and teaching others without being in the Bible. So we be in the Bible. We invest faithfully. We take the things God has given us. And if we buy into this agape love thing, and we freely give it away, even if it hurts, even if it costs us something for the sake of others. So you jump in on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. You do whatever you can do for your neighbors and for your brothers and sisters in Christ so that everyone hears and everyone grows. And you talk to God about it. Talk to God about all this stuff. And you share your faith because everyone needs to hear. So for you, even looking at those, what's your next step? What's the next one that you can be growing in? I'd love for you to be thinking about that all the time because everyone, everyone is a part of this growing until everyone is mature in Christ. So the third thing that sticks out is we live a life of striving in his strength. Striving in his strength. In verse 29, he says, So he just described his passion that everyone hears and everyone grows. And then he says, I labor for this, striving. And really that's the thing that gets me. Like that's what made me think, I just wanna give my life to ministry. Whether I'm in the workplace or I'm in an official ministry title, it doesn't matter to me, but I, and I'm asking you because I believe God's called you to, to think of your life as ministry. Because when you get obsessed with this, when it sticks in your head that everyone is to hear and everyone is to grow, then all of a sudden you start thinking like this and talking like this. You say, I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. For I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me in prison. So Paul describes his mission this way. He is laboring, he's striving, and he's struggling. And he's doing all of those things with no regret because in the midst of it, he's rejoicing and there's joy and there's satisfaction and there's purpose. And I can attest to you, when you give your life to this, though I've never been beaten, I haven't been stuck in prison, I haven't gone through any of the stuff that Paul's gone through, but just in the little bits of things I've been able to be a part of by God's grace, it's always worth it you're gonna get punched in the face, figuratively. You're gonna have hard conversations, literally. But through it all, there's this beauty. There's this satisfaction. You're connecting to what matters. You're connecting to what is actually changing eternity when you're a part of those things, helping everyone here, helping everyone grow. Paul understood that his life was a continuation of the ministry of Jesus. He also knew the only way this was gonna happen is if he was doing it in the power of Jesus. When we go back to that great commission in Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. And he gives this commission to make disciples. But then at the end, after he's given the commission, he says, and I will be with you always. Jesus says, I have all power and I'm going to be with you. And we learn a little later, he will be in us. So he's with us and he's in us. He's giving us everything we need to be a part of this incredible commission, mission that we've been given to continue the ministry of Jesus here on planet earth as long as we have breath. It's something he's given us to do. And he doesn't let us do it alone. In the book of John, it's like the John version of the Great Commission. At the very end, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, as the father has sent me, I now send you. It's this picture, the father sent me and Jesus has completed the mission. And Jesus just goes, and now I send you. You and I, we are the sent ones. We serve in his name and we serve by his power. You have been given this mission. You've been given an opportunity to continue the work of Jesus. You've been given the opportunity to represent Jesus in what you do and how you spend your time. Here's the practical takeaway I want for you today. I want you to have a name. I talked about having that notebook out or maybe the bulletin. If you're not connecting with people, if there's not a person or people in your life that you're trying to spend time with, talk to them a little bit about God, you're not, if you're not praying for them, if you're not loving them, then you're off mission. You're not playing the game. You're on the sidelines. There isn't as much joy promise for people on the sidelines as those who are playing the game. My encouragement to you is to have a name of someone who you're either praying for, you're trying to get to know, you're actively having conversations with, someone you're inviting into your home, someone you're taking out for coffee, someone in your life that you are intentionally trying to help them hear or grow. Someone who you're helping hear or grow because everyone is to hear and everyone is to grow. But if you don't have at least one name in your heart, in your head, and maybe even on your paper, you might not be a part of that. And I want you to be because this description of rejoicing this description of joy, I want it to be yours. There's nothing better for that. It's worth you laboring, striving, and struggling. It's worth it. It's worth it. Let's pray, and then we'll enjoy communion. Father, I come before you, and I am fully aware that I cannot present your word in a way that moves people's hearts. I pray that your word speaks for itself. I pray that this passage would just sit in our hearts and minds today, tonight, tomorrow, this week. I pray that we would look at our lives as a continuation of your ministry. For Jesus, you are overall, and only it's about you. It's Jesus alone, and you reside in us to give us the power to let people know that incredible beauty, that incredible message, that it's all about you and it's only you. So Jesus, fill us, strengthen us in these moments. Let us remember you as we celebrate communion and worship you in Christ's name, amen. For more information, visit us at biblecenterchurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center.